Good morning. It's 8.06. You're listening to the Local News Hour on KPCW. I'm Michelle Deininger, sitting in for Leslie Thatcher this morning. It's Thursday, March 2nd. It is a sunny and beautiful and cold morning. Let's check in with Thomas Giboy for our daily weather report. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Were you able to dig out of the snow a little bit today? My driveway was plowed happily. That's wonderful. <laughs> and we'll, we're going to get a little bit of a break in the weather today in Park City. So if you've been tired of the snow, today is going to be the day that you want to get outside and enjoy it. It's still going to be a chilly day in the Wasatch back, but with mostly sunny to partly cloudy skies, should be pretty nice. And if anybody's going up to the resort, it's going to be a nice bluebird day for sure. So mostly sunny in Park City, a daytime high of 27 degrees. The winds will continue out of the northwest, so it's going to make it feel even colder. So you can subtract about 5 to 10 degrees from our daytime high, and that's what the real feel is going to be for throughout most of the day in Park City. But as we go into tonight, of course, as, as quickly as we get some calm weather, we just know that it's not going to stick around based on what we've seen so far this season. So into tonight, clouds will start to increase. And by the overnight hours, we'll introduce about a 1 in 5, 20% chance for some snow showers. The overnight low tonight dropping to 19 degrees. And for our Friday, a decent chance for snow in Park City because we got a weak cold front that's going to be coming in from the northwest. It's not going to be anything too significant, but throughout the day tomorrow, including tomorrow morning, uh, we could pick up one to two inches of snow in Park City and maybe over a couple of inches for some of our northern Utah men. Could, could be just enough to create some slippery conditions out on the roadways, and that could start as early as tomorrow morning. Something to keep in mind for the early Friday morning commute. The daytime high tomorrow chopping out at 27, and outside of any wet weather, we'll mainly be looking at mostly cloudy skies. On Friday night, that chance for snow gradually goes down. High, high pressure tries to build back in. But then that high pressure won't be sticking around because we have another storm system that's going to impact northern Utah between Saturday, Sunday, and into Monday. On Saturday, it's about a 40% chance for snow, but that chance for snow will ramp up as we go into Saturday night. And the Saturday night system into Sunday will likely have a little bit more oomph to it compared to what we're going to see with the system coming in tomorrow. We actually could pick up maybe over a few inches of snow between Saturday night into Sunday as snow will remain likely throughout the day on Sunday. Daytime highs will come up slightly, but still staying at or below the freezing mark. And then the chance for snow sticks around in the forecast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week. Now, I don't think that it's going to be snowing 100% of the time, but we have some more energy that's going to continue to come in from our west, and daytime highs will trend downwards a little bit into early next week. Daytime highs will generally range in the upper 20s, and overnight lows will mainly be in the teens. So we're not getting rid of this active pattern anytime soon. So at the end of the day, enjoy today because we'll have the sunshine, and we'll likely have at least a little bit of sunshine through at least the first portion of our Saturday. But more snow coming our way, Michelle. All right. Thank you very much, Thomas. You're welcome. Have a good day. And to Thomas's point, there is resort traffic, unsurprisingly. Um, 2.24 was pretty busy around 7 a.m. I'll be right back after this with our avalanche forecast. It's 8.09. You're listening to the Local News Hour on KPCW. Joining me now on the phone is Mark from the Utah Avalanche Forecast Center. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. Today, overall, the avalanche danger is moderate. That means human triggered avalanches are still possible. And uh, since the middle of last week, we've had around four to six feet of snow that's fallen. So while the snowpack is moving towards stabilizing, that's just simply a lot of snow. And then uh, slopes that have been loaded by northwest and southwest winds during this time period could have double that amount and make pretty large avalanches. Um, and in fact, there was one fairly recent avalanche just spotted up on Square Top Mountain uh early this morning oh. so it's uh yeah so things are moving in the right direction they're not totally game on but you can still get out and uh ride some good powder any indication of how significant the avalanche was on square top 
Uh, we've got a photo on our website someone took from a distance. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see of or hear of a few more today. No idea how big that one was? Uh, it's a little hard to gauge. Sure. Someone spotted it from some distance away. Yeah. But nobody caught or carried. Um, not that we know of. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, that's Seven a reminder. <laughs> Anytime, any place. That's right. So. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Have a good one. You bye -bye. too. It's 810. I'll be right back after this with local news. It's 811. This is the local news hour on KPCW. Classical musicians from around the world are joining the Park City community in mourning the death of well-known violist Leslie Harlow. She was the founder of the Park City Beethoven Festival, and she passed away at her home last weekend after a short battle with lung cancer. KPCW's Kimberly Flores has more. When words just aren't enough, there's music. A language all its own, it needs no translation because it speaks directly to the soul. Leslie Harlow can be heard here playing her viola alongside her husband, clarinetist Russell Harlow and pianist Michael Gert. It's from Brahms Opus 91. Its full title, Russell says, translates into longing. It's a piece they arranged together that he says highlights Leslie's talent. She had a, a, a tone that was really quite unique. You know, a, a lot of people play uh, musical instruments and uh, they somehow don't let their inner selves come out into that sound. But Leslie had this thing. She had this uh, desire to create a sound that came from deep within her. Leslie Blackburn Harlow was born in 1953 in Lubbock, Texas. At 10 years old, she started playing the viola and her love for chamber music blossomed. She attended Texas Tech University and upon graduation earned a spot with the Oklahoma Symphony as associate principal viola. After a couple years in Oklahoma, Leslie headed to New York to study at the Juilliard School. She was passionate and driven and friends say when she set her mind to something, she went for it. Pamela Jones is a professor at the University of Utah School of Music and has played with the Harlows since 2009. She recalls how Leslie would nonchalantly tell the story of how she went to Juilliard. She's just like this force of nature, like with her level of creativity. She's just one of those people that was super creative and energetic and passionate about what she envisioned and, and just went after it. And I admire that. I mean, you know, she told me a lot about her life and she just said, you know, I decided I want to go to Juilliard, so I did had a thing she wanted to do, and she just did it. After graduating, Leslie moved to Salt Lake City and began playing with the Utah Symphony. It's where she and Russell met and fell in love. We were playing at that time uh, the Beethoven Ninth Symphony, so we always considered that our song. So Beethoven Ninth is our song. In 1984, two years before she and Russell met, Leslie Harlow founded the Deer Valley Chamber Music Festival. The festival, now known as the Beethoven Festival, is Utah's oldest classical music festival. It started as a summer festival, but quickly grew to include year-round events. Now in its 40th year, the Beethoven Festival has presented over 850 chamber concerts, many of which featured famous soloists from around the world. 
Sue Nemoyer is a professor of music composition and music history at Brigham Young University, Idaho. She got to know the Harlows when she was the music director at Park City Community Church in 2016. She says it was the way Leslie connected to the music that made her an artist others wanted to collaborate with. It was just an absolute pleasure to play with her. The music, it was, it was real conversation, musically speaking, which um, happens when professionals are really good at what they do and aren't so carried away with their own wonderfulness that, <laughs> that they don't listen to anybody else. And so just the kind of person she was uh, was displayed in the way she played. Playing chamber music to an intimate group was Leslie Harlow's passion. And as people learn of her passing, Russell says he's learning just how large an impact her passion had on this community. What Leslie would say, she loved to say this, a symphony is a public address. Chamber music is a personal letter. No funeral services will be held, but three memorial concerts are expected to be scheduled. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to the Park City Chamber Music Society. A link can be found in the online version of this report. Kimberly Flores, KPCW News. It's 816. I'll be right back in just a moment with Summit County Council member Tanya Hansen. It's 817. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. Joining me on the phone now, Tanya Hansen from Summit County Council. Good morning, Tanya. Good morning. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you perfectly. Okay, great. Thanks for calling in. So let's talk about last night. It wasn't a short one, was it? You spent three, three hours listening to community sentiment on the Dakota Pacific proposal at Kimball Junction. We had a reporter there. He's got a story that is on our website now, and it's in our email newsletter that goes out every day at 8. I checked it so you and I could talk, and it looked from his observations like no one spoke in favor of the project, although a couple of people raised issues related to project benefits. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, yeah, last night it, it was a really good meeting, actually. There were approximately... I'd say 175 to 200 people in attendance at Ecker Hill Middle School. There were 38 people who spoke and shared their opinions and, and point of view regarding this application. It was a, it was a very respectful and it was a good meeting. Um, but yes, you're right. The majority of the comments were in opposition of the Dakota Pacific project. So yesterday before the meeting, when we spoke to community development director Pat Putt, he urged people who were coming to speak to come with specifics on how the Dakota Pacific proposal would or would not serve the community, whether there were particular elements that warranted a yes or no vote from the council to change the existing land use contract. Did you hear specifics like that or? did hear specifics and we've heard these specifics in the past as well you know traffic is a huge issue and i would say the majority of people who spoke you know spoke about the traffic at kimball's junction uh people you know are concerned there's not enough affordable housing in the project too much market rate housing in the project and uh just feeling like uh the dakota pacific folks aren't being flexible enough to uh to work with with the community on their concerns. I want to ask more about the community, but 
I also want to take a quick second because Dakota Pacific did come and give a presentation which was the first time in the public hearing forum that they got to directly address the public with their new scaled down proposal different from 2021 you're saying people feel it's not different enough did they bring a lot of new information to the public did they try to convey their attempt to to work on some of these sticking points actually dakota pacific did not present last night uh, there was no, they were there, a couple of representatives were there. Uh, after the public hearing, they did speak and say, you know, that they disagreed with some of the comments that were made, and they would look forward to speaking uh, on more details when we have our uh, meeting on the 15th of March. Okay. Had it been planned that they were going to speak briefly at the beginning? I thought that that's what I heard maybe from someone else in the county. Um they could if they had chosen to, but, uh, you know, they just chose not to, just to listen to the public hearing. So I don't know what the conversation was regarding that. Okay. All right. So they talked afterwards, and they basically said they did, yes. didn't agree with the public sentiment. Um, Pretty much, yeah. And it was a very short, short uh, conversation that was had. All right. Did anything new come out of the public comment last night from, from everybody's input? From my point of view, no, uh, nothing new. I mean, uh, you know, some people shared the history that went on out there with the Boyer Company and the Tech Center and all of that, but really it's the same kind of sentiment we've been hearing all along. I didn't hear anything that really sparked me and went, oh, that's new. I didn't consider that. It was pretty much things that we had already heard. Okay, so I wanted to ask what struck you the most about the meeting and I don't want to put words in your mouth, I, but after, after what you just said, I think I can guess, but what struck you most about the meeting? You know, what has struck me most about the entire process, and listen, I was only put onto the council on November 22nd, so this is all pretty much new to me. Um, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to it before I started running for this position, so a lot of this is new information from November till now. But what has struck me throughout the whole process up to this point is the passion that the public has uh, in regards to this project and, and really not interested in, in this development moving forward. You know, we've, we've received a lot of emails from people who are, again, expressing their passionate opinion opposed to this. We've had a handful of people uh, email us that are um, in favor of this. But, uh, you know, the resounding number of people opposed is, is really impressive. It's <laughs> staggering, actually. Uh, someone did say last night, and I forget who it was, that they had spoken with someone at state level about public hearings throughout the state of Utah. And that public hearing that happened, I believe, uh, a year ago, December, where a thousand people showed up. Mm -hmm. He was told that was the largest public hearing ever to take place in the state of Utah. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but I thought that was interesting. That is truly noteworthy. And yes. when you think back to December 21 and think about how the public was opposed to the project on its face, now there is an entire new level of opposition to the legislature's role in this project, given, given um, SB 84. Was there much conversation about that last night, or did you just stay out of that? 
Well, we've tried to stay out of that, really, and just look at this project for what it is and not bring <clears throat> that noise into the conversation. But a few people absolutely, you know, stood up and, and spoke their minds about uh, how disheartening that whole process has been. Yeah, I, I noticed that f- for something that is related to the Utah legislature, um, the Dakota, well, SB 84 seems to have garnered pretty universal bipartisan opposition up here, which I don't think you see very often. And, and someone did get up and say, they're a Democrat, their neighbors are Republicans, and they have neighbor, neighbors who are liberal, and all of them are agreeing that what's happening in the legislature is just uh, unacceptable. And she said the one thing we can all agree on. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to agree on things. Yes, yes, that was good. All right, so you spent three hours on that. And just to remind everybody who maybe wanted to participate and couldn't, you're, you're doing it again next Monday. Are you going to do it in Ecker Hill again? We're doing it next Wednesday, March 8th. Oh, sorry, next Wednesday. Okay. 6, 6 p.m. at Ecker Hill Middle School for those folks who were unable to attend. And also, you know, it's been online as well, Zoom. So that happens March 8th. And then March 15th, the plan is that uh, there will be deliberations and discuss- discussions with the applicant and probably a vote from the council on March 15th. Okay. And the council is weighing the project on its merits and taking community input as a significant component of the decision-making process, right? Correct. Okay. All right. Well, should we take a minute and talk about the other things that you addressed <laughs> in the meeting last night? That, that wasn't the only thing on the agenda. It was just the most time-consuming. Yes, I think we should talk about other things. There were only a couple of other things on the agenda. And uh, the one thing on the agenda was a work session was planned to preview and discuss the preliminary design for the new Summit County facility uh, called Silver Summit County Services Building. And that's out on the F.J. Gilmore parcel over by Home Depot. they tried to present, but due to time constraints and also tef- uh, technical difficulties, we tabled this discussion. And we are having a special meeting on Friday, March 3rd at 3 p.m. at the Canada South Summit County Services Building to discuss this item. Uh, we, need to, we need to have this discussion and decide how we move forward with this because they're waiting to excavate and, and get going on this building. They're going to excavate now? <laughs> Well, they've got to put all the paperwork together and get things ready to go. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> no, we'll wait a little bit till the snow has subsided some. <laughs> okay, so that makes sense. So special meeting Friday with that as the only agenda item. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then anything else from last night's meeting that you wanted to highlight for listeners? Yes, the other thing that was on the agenda is uh, the Snyderville Basin Cemetery District. And I don't know if people are aware of this, but there is no cemetery in the Snyderville Basin. And actually there's only like two, maybe four cemetery lots left in the Park City Cemetery. And uh, so we're totally out of space. So we adopted a governing ordinance last night to move forward with the cemetery district. 
And um, I think that's pretty exciting because I think that this is something that a lot of people are interested in and we need to find a location and a funding mechanism and appoint a five-member board of trustees to move this, this forward. So we approved that last night, the governing ordinance. All right. Yeah, that is very interesting. So mm -hmm. you'll convene that or create the district and then the, probably the first order of business is, is identifying where a cemetery could be located. Yeah, we'll appoint the five-member board of trustees and actually that will be their job to go out and find a location that would work for a cemetery. And, you know, I mean, it, it's a little more challenging than it sounds because you can't have an area that's super rocky you know, for excavation, um, you know, it's questionable whether, uh, uh, you know, what kind of dirt you need that, that's not contaminated. Uh, and then, you know, the cost of the land and how much land do you need for a cemetery, you know, anywhere from five to 10 acres. So there's a lot more to it than just going out and going, oh, this looks good. Let's do it there. So there will be some work that needs to be done. And then, you know, funding it. Um, it could go to the um, voters to see if we uh, impose a tax rate to help fund this. So all of that yet to come. All right. Well, we'll watch for the updates on that. Mm -hmm. And that was it. That was the that was the meeting last night. Okay. Well, thank you very much. We will check in with you again next week and, and find out how the second public hearing goes, among other things you're working on. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. That was Summit County Council Member Tanya Hansen. Be back in just a moment with KPCW General Manager Renee Bodley-Miller. It's 8.30. You're listening to the Local News Hour on KPCW. I'm Michelle Deininger, and sitting across from me in the studio is KPCW General Manager Renee Bodley-Miller. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. The news team has been busy in the past 24 hours with um, covering this big public hearing last night. So yes. I'm happy you're here this early this morning. Right. It was it was a long day and a night yesterday and a morning today, but it's easier to get up when the sun is out. Yeah, I agree. So let's talk about next week's pledge drive. We're going to explain to people why we do it why it matters to us and why it matters to other nonprofits in the community. I was thinking maybe we start with a short explanation of the nonprofit news model. Sure, of course. Um, we do pledge drives differently than other public radio stations. We will be on the air for four days, seven hours each day. A lot of public radio stations do weeks long pledge drives, seven day, 10 day pledge drives, and they're pitching all day long. Um, we do it a little differently. Part of KPCW's mission, in addition to providing local news and great music and excellent public affairs shows to our community, is to support every other nonprofit in this community. And we have a lot. Um, you know, we are a nonprofit radio station, and we feel like it is our obligation to help spread the word about what all other nonprofits in our community do to serve this community. So we ask more than 20 nonprofits to come in every pledge drive and host an hour of our pledge drive. So what you'll hear are nonprofits like Recycle Utah, Christian Center, Peace House, People's Health Clinic. Um, they'll come in, host the hour along with someone who has sponsored their hour. Um, like People's Health Clinic, Flanagan's Restaurant is sponsoring their hour. That sponsorship is a minimum of $1,000. That money goes to the radio station. 
So you'll hear People's Health Clinic talk about what they do and how being on KPCW throughout the year helps them do what they do to help the community. We, we put out the word about vaccination clinics and vision clinics and, um, you know, anything the, the clinic is doing. We'll either do that through a, a free public service announcement, which you hear our DJs read every hour at the quarter past and quarter till the hour, or we do it with um, reduced underwriting. Um, our nonprofits pay less than for profits do to get that message out over the year. Okay. Was that clear? Oh, yeah, <laughs> definitely. I, sometimes I think people might not be totally clear on what the sponsorship component means. Yeah. So someone is donating $1,000 in the name of the nonprofit who is coming in to talk. So it's Correct. basically helping that nonprofit get their message out during our pledge drive. And also those nonprofits, every dollar they raise for KPCW over $1,000 gets them free underwriting. So they, they accrue like this debit card with the station where, um, and so that $1,000 sponsor gets them to that $1,000 mark. We have given over $100,000 worth of free underwriting to nonprofits in the past calendar year. And then for people who are not in the industry, underwriting is uh, the messages you hear from our supporters, like the Pendry Plaza messages. Yeah. and and. There's a difference in commercial radio advertising. If you're listening to a commercial radio station, you're hearing the car dealer saying, come in for a Labor Day sale and prices are down. Um, underwriting in the public radio world, we have to abide by very strict FCC standards. There can be no adjectives. There can be no pricing data. Um, you have to be very clear, which is why you hear programming on KPCW is brought to you by and, and really the most of a, what they call a call to action an underwriter can give is um, for more information, go to, and they'll usually give a website. So it's, it's different, you know, our director of underwriting has um, a larger hurdle to clear when she's going out and asking people to please underwrite on the station. And um, what we do, we call it the halo effect of public radio. Um, instead of an ROI, it's uh, a return on community, ROC is what we call it. When you hear your business name on the public radio airwaves, you're sending the message that you support not only the music and the news that you're hearing on the radio station, but how it helps a community. Okay, let's talk about KPCW as an NPR affiliate in, in the greater context of, of news nationwide. We got an alarming update last week that NPR at the national level facing budget cuts and laying off staff. Now, what mm. does that mean to us? Let's talk about that for a second. We are an NPR affiliate. Um, and that means we pay NPR to carry morning edition in those newscasts that you hear at the top of every hour, which I love that as part of our service to the community, that you can tune in to KPCW and you get that five-minute national newscast at the top of every hour. And we know people love listening to morning edition and weekend edition in the mornings. Um, so when we got that news from NPR, um, they're seeing a decline in corporate sponsorships. They're anticipating a $30 million um, deficit in their budget this year. I hate to hear that. Um, I was talking to Maria Omara. She's the, the head of KUER down in Salt Lake City. They're more of a traditional NPR affiliate than we are. And um, her theory was that when you've got a Democrat 
president in office that people tend to not consume news as much that um, sometimes when, you know, in the past administration, people were tuning in to just say, what happened today? And they're not doing that as much. So she's thinking that listeners may be dropping off a little bit because of that. Um, However, for stations that do strong local news, that's where we're providing a service that um, makes us immune to kind of what's happening at that national level. So we've all heard about news deserts and the decline in local news. And in fact, there was um, just a Harvard study um, called News Crisis. Can local public radio help fill the news gap created by the decline of local newspapers? And they released this um, in January of this year and basically made the case for local public radio stations being in the best position to keep their communities informed while local newspapers decline. Did that answer your question? It did. NPR? It did. And it, it, what you're saying is we're all in good shape. We, our jobs are secure. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thank goodness. Yeah. You know, you worry when you hear that news about NPR. Is that a canary in the coal mine? And is that uh, something that's going to manifest at the local level later this year? You know, we're all a little concerned about the economy. Everyone knock on wood. So far, we are seeing both our underwriting support and community support stay level. But this pledge drive next week, Michelle, will really be telling for us and how those trends are going. Um, One thing I'm very optimistic about, we started the local last July. That's that free daily newsletter that shows up in email inboxes of about 5,200 people in our community. We are getting such strong, positive feedback about that service that I'm hoping that it, it helps people become aware of, we don't stand still. As you support us, we don't keep it status quo. We keep increasing the service to our community. As the community grows, what we need to do also becomes bigger, and we need everyone's donations to help us do that. And so that kind of ties in nicely to us talking about our goals next week, because the the keyword free for our community, the, the newsletter's free for you listeners in your email, but it's not free for us to make it for you. So let's talk a little bit about our budget, like what we spend our money on. True. Yeah. We, um, our, our annual budget is $2.1 million a year. Um, we spend money on our employees. We have 14 full-time employees. Um, in December, we just hired our first ever full-time digital media director, Ashton Edwards. She is the person who, who who makes sure that local gets out along with you, Michelle. And we added you almost two years ago in June. Um, Leslie Thatcher has been serving as the sole news director of this station. And we realized with the amount of content we were churning out and with Leslie's focus on the local news hour, we needed to get someone else in. So we brought you in. And you have such a fine eye on that copy for the local. It's fantastic. Um, so as, as that costs money, right, to hire people, to give them a good benefits package, to keep them employed in Summit County. It is not inexpensive. So our, our biggest cost is our staff. Then we have our programming costs. You know, we pay NPR. We pay American Public Media. Um, we pay the Associated Press, you know, we're a, um, an affiliate of the Associated Press. We pay for the music that we play. 
Um, all of that costs a lot of money. And people hate the overhead word, but let's let's face it, you know, we've got to keep the lights on. We've got to keep the place heated. Oh, my gosh, the heating bills this year. You know, everyone's walking around the station. Poor Ethel up front's wearing a down coat and a scarf around her neck. I mean, we're, we're trying to keep... I've heard that people don't like the phrase lean and mean when it comes to a nonprofit, but we really are not extravagant in our spending. And I really feel that what we put out for, uh, that what we provide to the community is is such a great bargain given the expenses that we incur doing it. So our goal? $223,000. That's what we want to raise next week. Last year, we came just shy of $200,000. The staff, we all looked at each other and like, are we really going to try to do better than we did last winter, given the concerns about the economy? And we're like, yep, we we're, we think we can do it. We think by putting the local out there that, that we're hitting enough people and proving to them that we're working hard for this money, that we think we can get that support. Yeah, we have a new product that, that people are consuming and hoping that people will show their appreciation for the work we're doing next week. And so let me thank, if I can, um, we have, oh gosh, where are my notes? <laughs> I should have been better prepared for this part. Um, we need two, spon- two uh, nonprofits are still looking for sponsors for next week. Um, Lucky Ones on Thursday at 11 a.m. Um, if there is a company out there or a private entity that wants to sponsor Lucky Ones, please let us know. Um, Give us a call here at this station, 435-649-9004, or email Sarah Irvin, sarah at kpcw.org. That's Sarah with an H. Um, Summit Land Conservancy. You know, Cheryl Fox comes in every pledge drive and does such a great job raising money for us. And she normally comes in with a matching grant. And um, this year, she's she's still looking to find one. so we need a sponsor for Summit Land Conservancy, and they are on day one. They're on Monday at 9 a.m. You can donate anytime. You don't have to wait for next week. So if you want to donate right now, you can go to kpcw.org, hit that donate button, and in the comments section, you can put in, you know, I want to my donation to be in honor of this nonprofit, and you can see our nonprofit schedule on our website. Just click the pledge drive banner. And then I just want to reiterate, when people are sponsoring nonprofits and, and raising money and people are calling in in the name of the nonprofit, the, that fundraising is for KPCW. Yes, thank you for making that clear. The nonprofit will get the benefit of the free underwriting, but the money you donate during Pledge Drive does go to KPCW. Um, we've got a couple of gold sponsors I especially want to thank. Um, of course, uh, Mary Charlie Winsor at the Iron Horse District, thank you very much for being a gold sponsor. Promontory Foundation, they are a loyal sponsor of KPCW. We're very grateful to them. High Star Ranch, thank you. And, you know, our, our two ski resorts in town, they step up every year for us. Deer Valley is a gold level sponsor and Vail Epic Promise is a gold level sponsor. Not only did they give it that gold level, but they also donated a lot of premiums. So when you call in and make a pledge, you'll get a thank you gift. And we've got um, mountain ski passes and, and, and things that we can give to our donors that um, thank you to those resorts for donating those. 
All right. Thank you so much. I feel like we've covered all of it. I, I hope our community. Oh, we've got one more. One more thing to add. Just want to stress the Broadcasters Club. Um, this is our sustaining giving group of people who give $1,000 or more every year. We throw great parties and events to thank this group of people. This past November, we threw our first ever ski season kickoff party. And it was a blast. People showed up in their retro ski attire. There were people who had their ski passes from years past, you know, all around their neck and attached to their, their coats. We had a great band playing. It was a fabulous event. And um, my husband told me this morning, he's like, I think we had a great snow year this year because we had a great ski season kickoff <laughs> party. We were all clearly doing our snow dance that night. It was a lot of fun. And if you want to be a member of the Broadcasters Club, it is a minimum $1,000. That's for two people to join. That gets you a membership for two, gets you access to about six to eight events a year. And two of those events are summer barbecue and the ski season kickoff party you can bring two friends to. So if you kind of pencil it out, um, you get a lot more than $1,000 in value for that $1,000 donation. I will say I danced more at that ski party than I have in a long time. <laughs> I have some videos from that party of some really interesting dance moves. Um, a little Elaine action from Seinfeld. Uh, was, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Anyhow, that's okay. for another day. Yes. Thank you very much. Thanks, Michelle. All right. That was KPCW General Manager Renee Bodley-Miller. I'll be back with more local news and Peace House Development Director Sally Tauber after this. It's 846. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. The Park City Council is meeting for its two-day retreat starting this morning and continuing through tomorrow. That's at the Park City Library. They're going to do a deep dive on transportation and sustainability programs, among other things. KPCW's Parker Malatesta has more. Thursday's meeting will begin with a vote on a contract that could begin a study of the city-owned land at Kearns Boulevard and Bonanza Drive that was previously envisioned as an arts and culture district. The council will then discuss results from the recent National Community Survey, which include much higher participation than past years, but more dissatisfaction with some aspects of Park City life. Also scheduled is a work session on community priorities, which are used to guide the city's budget and projects. The four priorities the city currently uses are equity, environment, housing, and transportation. After lunch, the council is set to hold an over three-hour meeting on transportation strategy and planning. Park City Manager Matt Dias said that discussion will focus on trying to find consensus on key questions. Something like traffic. How are we going to approach traffic? Are we going to um, try to solve for all people all, at all the time, which is nearly impossible? Are we going to prioritize residents? Are we going to prioritize our workforce? Are we going to elevate moving um, visitors in and out? The hardest question is, you know, we can't solve for all people at all the time and, and remain effective. And so we're going to have to make some hard choices down the road. And Friday's meeting will begin with a briefing on sustainability focused on the city's efforts to run on net 100% renewable electricity by 2030. That'll be followed by a briefing on a trip a Park City delegation, which included Mayor Nan Worrell, took to sister city Courchevel, France in early February. Later, the council has time set aside for a workshop on regulations involving international workers and rental properties around Park City. 
Dias said that discussion came at the request of Worrell amid worries about overcrowding in living situations, particularly among foreign workers on J-1 visas working at local resorts and other businesses for the winter season. That portion of the meeting will be led by Dave Thacker, the city's chief building official, and will address what the city has authority to change. Um, you know, currently we do license short-term rentals and we do not license long-term rentals. Um, conventional wisdom has we've been trying to ensure and reduce any barriers to long-term um, rental housing in our community. And there, I think there has been conventional wisdom that, you know, the more checks and balances and regulation you put into that, perhaps the less likely people are to offer their rental unit for a long-term basis. So, Dias said representatives from local nonprofits and ski resorts have been invited to join that discussion. The meetings on Thursday and Friday both start at 9 a.m. and will be held in the community room on the third floor of the Park City Library. The public is invited to attend. The agendas and a link to attend virtually can be found in the online version of this report at kpcw.org. Parker Malatesta, KPCW News. It's 849. You're listening to the local news hour on KPCW. Joining me now in the studio, Peace House Director of Development, Sally Tauber, and Prevention and Education Awareness Director, Emma Zavallos. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Thanks Good morning. for having us. Thanks for coming in. So we're going to talk about next week's screening of the film, She Said. That is the dramatized version of the work that uh, two reporters did to expose Harvey Weinstein's sexual abuse of women. Before we get into that, I thought maybe for people who are newer to the community might not be familiar with Peace House, if one of you could just quickly explain its role. Yes, uh, at Peace House, we're a nonprofit and we help survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault in Wasatin Summit County. And Peace House has been in operation for quite some time. Over 25 years, that's correct. We celebrated our 25th anniversary two years ago, so. And how many people do you serve at, at one time? Oh, at one time. Well, we have 24 beds and shelter, so uh, it, obviously if a single person came in, you might not be using all the beds in one room, so. Uh, typically we have around 20 to 22 people in shelter at any one time, and um, we also have transitional housing. So we have 12 transitional housing units that includes 36 beds. And that is always full. So people can stay there as uh, after they've left emergency shelter and while they're um, stabilizing and receiving services before they move into their own apartment in the community. So that number of beds. 60 and, total. And that number of years, we can do the math and, and kind of calculate that yeah. you've served a lot of people th through we those decades. certainly have. We did open a new facility in 2019 in the fall, a 45,000 square foot building out by the hospital. And uh, we also offer prevention and education services. We pr we offer clinical therapy, case management, legal advocacy. We even have a housing navigator on staff and a sexual assault, assault uh, coordinator. Um, we have a team that goes into the hospitals and works with survivors of sexual assault and helps them through their exams and uh, get connected with services following. It's pretty new. All right, thanks for that rundown of services. Let's talk about next week's event. You're going to screen the movie She Said at the Santee, and then you're going to have a panel discussion. The movie is based on the book that the reporters put together after they did their investigative work. Have either of you read the book or seen the movie yet? I have seen the movie, yes. And I read the book. Thank okay. you. <laughs> 
So I, I think people know about Harvey Weinstein's crimes. It, it can be hard to keep track of the number of victims he has or how long he was able to perpetrate that violence, right, before, before these reporters eventually took him down and they worked hard to do it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Jody uh, Cantor was here in December and we had um, held a small event with her and she points out that she wasn't really trying to take Harvey Weinstein down. She was, she was attempting to investigate uh, his crimes and he, she, she's an investigative journalist and what happens afterwards is, is uh, the court system and um, what, what, what happens. But um, she was able to gain the trust of many um, of the stars in Hollywood and t they told her their story and that's really what happened. Talk about the role of journalists in informing, educating, and then protecting society. Yes, journalists, uh, they have an important role. And what really inspired me about, you know, the movie and all, you know, this, everything that happened, um, it is how all these survivors were able to be empowered and unite their voice and break stigma. Because stigma is a big issue when it comes about sexual violence and domestic violence. There's a lot of fear. So the, the fact that they were able to unite and speak up and use their voice was just very um, inspiring and powerful. Yes. So we'll make sure that everybody has all the details about how to attend. Tell us about the panel discussion that's going to follow. Who's going to be on the panel and what's the goal of the discussion? Yes, uh, we will have uh, Liliana Olvera Arbon. She's the executive director of UCASA, the Utah Coalition Against Sexual Assault. And she has over 10 years of experience. Um, yes, she will provide a lot of information about the topic of sexual assault and also um, the work that the coalition does because it's different than nonprofit work. So it will be very amazing to have people assist to that panel. And we will also have um, the summit prosecutor. Um, Margaret Olson. Yes, Margaret <laughs> Olson. Yes, she's amazing and a very, there will be two powerful voices in this panel. So you do not want to miss this panel. Um, I highly recommend assisting to this. It's going to be wonderful. Sally, do you want to talk about the date, time, place, and how to register to attend? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the, the film will be screened at the Sandy Auditorium in collaboration with Park City Film, and it is sponsored by Utah Film Studios. So thank, a big thanks and shout out to Utah Film Studios. Uh, this will be Thursday, March 9th. It begins at 7 p.m. We expect a, a pretty big crowd, so arrive early for a parking spot. And if you don't know where that is, that's 1255 Park Avenue, just above the library. You can register on our website, peacehouse.org, if you go to events and click on the movie event. You can also register through Park City Film. So. All right, thanks. It, it is free, I should oh, mention. Yes. There is no charge. Um, we encourage registration, just so we have an idea of how many people to expect, so. That's key. And let's talk about why this issue continues to be so important to highlight. I, I know in your line of work, you might be able to speak a little bit to some, some of the statistics. Yes. Utah, Wasatch Back, what, whatever you find compelling that you want to share. So in the state of Utah, one in three women is affected by interpersonal violence or sexual assault in their lifetime and one in five men. Uh, that's a really high number. 
Yes, it's a very high number. And, you know, uh, domestic violence, it is a public health issue. It affects everyone, no matter what your race is, your socioeconomic status, um, or any identities that you may have. It can affect you. And it also affects women, children, and men. And we also serve women, children, and men in our uh, at Peace House. Mm-hmm. So one in three. Do we, do we see a trend through the years, increasing, decreasing? What we're noticing, I don't, I don't believe is the increasing. I believe more people are open to reporting and speaking up about this after the Me Too movement. So yes, there's more people um, that are less scared to reporting and you know accessing services, but we still have barriers. Um, but yes, I do believe that the numbers are still the same and probably even higher because after the COVID, the pandemic, more people were in their homes. And unfortunately, the numbers when it comes to mental health issues, domestic violence, sexual assault, they increased as well. And so part of the goal of doing things like this is to reduce the stigma by making sure that everybody knows this, you're not alone, it happens to everyone and here are the resources. That's correct and we will have counselors at the movie if someone's in need of help, uh, would like to talk to someone and so yeah, please come and, and join us. And then for people who may be in crisis who may be listening, are there hotline numbers you want to share right now? Very much so. Uh, if you have any questions at all, please call our 800 line, 1-800-647-9161. That's answered 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. There's always someone at the other end, and it is confidential. You don't have to give your name or any information. You can ask questions. You can ask for referrals. Um, yeah, so we, we hope that you'll use that number. All right. Thank you both. Is there anything else that you meant to touch on that we haven't gotten to yet? We really didn't talk about the Me Too movement. You brought that up. That's pretty fascinating. It did come from this particular investigative um, uh, group and it really shook the, the world. Uh, and Jody doesn't talk a whole lot about that, but I think that, that that's an important part of everything. Uh, you know, that's interesting. You're right, and I think Me Too has just become so ubiquitous and so well understood that I think people do forget that they were the ones who drew attention to it, although I seem to recall they didn't coin that term. There was another woman who used that first. Yeah. Does that ring a bell? Mm -hmm. Yes, it does ring a bell. I don't remember the name. I apologize, but yes, it was another woman. And I believe it was a woman of color, if I'm not wrong. And yes, I recall that too. Mm -hmm. um, and, and and she has received attention and recognition for her role. Yes, and it also impacted uh, Latin America. Like this, this transcended the United States. Like there's, you know, there's a nonprofit that opened up in Ecuador. Um, you know, it united a lot of survivors. So I, 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 it's just very impressive and it, it felt like an awakening of humanity to this big issue. Thank you for the reminder of that. Okay, anything else or will that cover it? No, we look forward to seeing everyone on Thursday, March 9th at 7 p.m. at the Santee Auditorium. And uh, please go to the peacehouse.org website for any information, thank you. All right, thank you both so much. Thank you. That was Peace House Director of Development, Sally Tauber, and 
Prevention and Education Awareness Director, Emma Zavallos.